We are starting a new series this morning entitled The Story, Stranger Things. In uh, 2012, 2013, we spent 31 weeks going through something called The Story. How many of you remember The Story we went through? Just raise your hand. Great. That's what I was hoping for. Um, we read through it as a church, and uh, there were versions of it for kids and for youth. And basically what The Story does is it edits the Bible so it reads more like a novel. It doesn't change the Bible. It uses word-for-word -word scripture from the NIV. It's not a paraphrase, but it edits the Bible so it reads more like a novel. And if you've never read it um, or weren't here when we did it uh, five years ago, just encourage you to pick one up. We have some at the information booth for $5. And uh, again, it's, just, it's a great way to get uh, an overview of all of scripture. Um, and one thing, one of the things that the story did is it encouraged us to look at the Bible through three different views or perspectives. Uh, one view was called the lower, lower story, which was the view of what was happening in uh, the Bible. There was another view called the upper story, which is the view of God's perspective of what's happening in the Bible. And then there's the view called our story, which is the view of how the Bible intersects with the story of our lives. And you may remember when we went through that series, we had different places on the platform we would walk to. We're going to do that again. So during the series, when we speak from a lower story perspective, it will be the main platform here, where I'm at now. When we speak from an upper story platform uh, or perspective, we'll be at, I'll go to the upper platform right over there. And then when I, we speak from a, our, our story perspective, uh, we will go down to the lower platform. Um, just, so just to kind of explain, if you see me moving around, what, what is he doing? That's what I'm doing. But the story, we called this, we're not going through the whole story. We're going to go through the story in, and the stranger things that we find in Scripture. Now, we have a very high view of Scripture here. It is the Word of God. But we also know that there are some strange, weird, and odd stories in the Bible. And if you're a skeptic, or find yourself to be more skeptical of Scripture, the, these stranger stories are some of the reasons why skeptics question the Bible. And for those of us who are believers, these stranger stories will at least confuse us or make us wonder what's going on. Again, they're strange stories. But what we want to see through the story Stranger Things is that in the biblical story and our story, God is at work in the unexpected things of life. God is at work in the unexpected things of life. These stories are strange. We wouldn't necessarily expect these kinds of stories in God's Word. And even though they are strange and unexpected, God is at work in them. In our lives, sometimes we get blindsided. Things happen to us that we never saw coming or could possibly imagine. And when those things happen, it is not uncommon for us to wonder, is God with us? Where is God in all of this? And the series, we hope to use this series to remind us that yes, God is at work in the unexpected things in our lives. A verse that we want to keep in front of us throughout this series, and I encourage you to memorize it if you don't know it already. It's Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, as simple as it might be to say, God is different from us, and sometimes we forget that. You see, we have expectations of how God is supposed to act. Well, look, when God doesn't act like we think God should act, well, it's because he's not us. He is different from us. So it makes sense that some of the things he does will be strange in our eyes. There are other logical reasons of why the Bible will seem strange. Again, these stories are from 2,000 years ago or older. There were very different customs, very different family dynamics, very different views and understandings and practice of marriage, very different views and rights and roles of women, very different way of how God would interact with the people. It's a different culture, a different time, different values. And that accounts for a lot of the strangeness of Scripture that we'll find there. But even with all those considerations, there are still some strange stories in the Bible. Just flat out weird. And some that we're going to cover in this series. Um, in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus needs two attempts to heal a blind guy. What, did he have an off day? That he couldn't heal the guy on the first time? He had to do it again on the second time? What's that all about? Or in Numbers 21, where God heals the Israelites by having them build an idol. Well, God forbade idols. Why would he have them build one? Or in Genesis 32, where God enters a wrestling match with Jacob. What, was God going to join the WWE? What's going on here? Or in Job chapter 2, where God gambles with Satan. And I may be using gambling loosely here, but Job sure lost a lot. Or in Acts chapter 5, where a couple lies in church and then they die. I hope that still doesn't happen. Or in Matthew chapter 8, where we learn about some cliff-diming demon-possessed pigs. That speaks for itself. That's just weird. Okay? This morning, we're going to look at a story that involves destruction of cities by using burning sulfur and a woman who's turned into a pillar of salt because she turned around and looked back. It comes from Genesis chapter 19. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to summarize the first part of the chapter because we're going to jump right into the middle of the story for the scripture of the day. But in Genesis 19, we learn about someone named Lot. And Lot is a nephew to someone named Abraham. Now, Abraham is one of the main good guys in all of the Bible. He's definitely a top three in the Old Testament. and You could probably put him in the top five or six in the whole Bible. Okay, he's a major player in Scripture. And Lot is his nephew. And Lot is living in a place called Sodom. And Sodom is an evil place that God is going to destroy. And so, but God sends angels to save Lot before the city is destroyed. And the angels come to the city. Lot meets them. He brings them into his house. But the men of the city, when they learn that the angels have arrived, they don't know they're angels. They just think they're visitors. They want to harm the visitors. And I'm not going to go into the details of, of what they wanted to do. But Lot tries to convince the city to leave the visitors alone. 
but he doesn't convince them. He fails to convince them. So they're going to break down Lot's door, but before they do that, the angels blind the men of the city. And right after they do that is where the scripture we're going to read jumps in. And so we've asked Dick Johnson to read scripture for this morning. Dick, if you can make your way to the podium, I'm going to ask if you're able to please stand and face the center of the room. Again, we read from the center of the room to remind us where the word is to be in our lives, it is to be central, and we stand because we believe that this is the word of God. And so, Dick, whenever you're ready, please read Genesis 19, verses 12 to 26. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here with you, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they, they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town is called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Dick, thank you very much. You may be seated. I want to start with something I'm just going to call kind of a strange suggestion, and that is to not let the stranger things keep you out of the story. And I want to take a minute to explain what I mean by that. There are two different kinds of questions with any kind of story. And I'm just going to label these questions, and actually this isn't an original thought, I, I heard this from someone else, and it's really helpful is that there are external questions and there are internal questions. An external question will question the story itself and an internal question, those are the kinds of questions that let you enter the story. And again, I'm going to try to explain the difference and hopefully this is clear. Um, have you ever watched a movie with someone who just loves to pick apart the movie? You know what I'm talking about? You know, it's, it, you're watching an epic space battle. And the person picks the movie apart by saying, well, you know, sound can't travel in space. So I don't know how we're hearing all these explosions. 
Okay, thank you very much for the science lesson. Um, or they'll ruin an action movie by pointing out the hero has fired 31 shots out of a gun that only carries eight bullets and he hasn't reloaded in like 15 minutes, you know, so he points that out. Or, um, and I don't know why it's always a he, it could be a she. Anyway, um, or they pick out the fact in like a romance, comedy kind of movie, you know, where the guy rushes to the airport to proclaim his love to the woman and he has to get there before her flight takes off. You know, they point out, you know, he could have just called her on the cell phone and said, can you wait a couple minutes before I get there? I have something important I want to tell you. You know, that would work too. You know, but how much fun, how much fun is it to watch a movie with those kinds of people? It's not much fun at all because all they're doing is picking apart the movie. I just want to enjoy the movie. Those are external questions, okay? They keep you and everyone else from enjoying the movie. Stop it, all right? Now, when it comes to Genesis 19, there are some external questions that we could ask. For example, you know, turning into a pillar of salt, how does that happen? And is that fair? It doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. That's an external question. Or something like, you know, raining down, burning sulfur? Come on, okay? That's an external question. Now, I'm not saying there is never a time or a place for an external question. There are. There are good questions to be asked about Scripture or any kind of story. But the danger with an external question is if that's all you ever ask, you never get to enter the story. You will always be outside of it. Versus an internal question, those are the kinds of questions that let you enter the story. Those are the kinds of things that let you get caught up in the story. So when you are wondering, hey, is the hero, how, how are they going to overcome this? Or are they going to overcome this? How is that going to happen? That's an internal question. Or is that couple, are they ever going to fall in love and get together? What's going to happen with them? That's an internal question. Or if you find yourself rooting for or rooting against certain characters, you have now entered the story. Those are internal questions. In Genesis 19, a great internal question is why does Lot and his family, why do they get saved? Because there's this strange circumstance that you see in the story, if you follow the story, and that is that God is clearly trying to help Lot and his family and it seems like they resist every step of the way when God is trying to help. God tries to help them and they resist. Again, God's help to Lot and his family is, first of all, he sends angels. And then those angels tell Lot on two different occasions, hey, look, the city's going to be destroyed. Let me just reread that passage. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. And he said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. And with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. And even after both of those warnings, they still don't leave. And so the angels grab their hands and lead them out of the city. It literally says that. When he hesitated, in verse 16, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife 
and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city for the Lord was merciful to them. And then after all of that, he, they allow Lot to flee to a closer place where he says to Lot, after Lot says, I can't make it to the mountains, that's way far away. So he says, well, very well. I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. So time and time and time and time again, God is trying to help Lot out. And time and time and time and time again, they resist. Because Lot and his family, their responses, first of all, they respond with disbelief. They flat out don't believe it. Again, it says, his sons-in-law thought he was joking. There's hesitation. Again, it literally says, when he hesitated. There's the attitude, I can't do it. Where he says, no, my Lord, please, I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. There's flat-out disobedience where they're told, don't look back. But Lot's wife looked back. It sure looks like in this story that God is trying to rescue Lot and his family, and Lot and his family don't want to be rescued. It's a strange circumstance. But I think we find ourselves in similar strange situations where God often tries to help us and we resist. Again, this is a story from thousands of years ago. And yet God is still a God who's trying to help us. That hasn't changed. Now look, I don't know the condition of your marriage or friendships or family. I don't know how it's going with you at work. I don't know how your health is. I don't know what the chaos in your life may look like or if you have any right now. But I do know this. God is trying to help you. And I wonder how many of us respond like Lot and we don't believe it. Or we hesitate. Or we say, I can't. Or I won't do what God wants me to do. Or we may even just flat out disobey what God wants from us. Maybe, just maybe, God is trying to get us away from some kind of evil and we don't want to leave it. It's a strange situation. God is trying to help us and we resist. But from God's perspective, you know, it's, it, there are so many different angles in this story. But from God's perspective, you know, what is God doing in this situation? Why is God trying to help a guy who doesn't seem to want help? What's that about? This story takes place in Genesis chapter 19. If you were to go back one chapter to Genesis 18, you would see that God reveals to Abraham, and you re may remember me saying, Abraham, one of the good guys in all of Scripture, one of the major players in all of Scripture, 
God reveals to Abraham that he is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He does that in Genesis 18. And Abraham, again, he knows that his nephew Lot lives there. And so Abraham comes to plead with God to save the city that his nephew lives in. And so Abraham has this negotiation with God. You ever try to bargain with God? Abraham has a classic negotiation with God. And Abraham begins by saying, hey, are you really going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? Are you going to do that, God? What if there are 50 righteous people in that city? And God says, if there are 50 righteous people in that city, I will not destroy the city. And then the negotiation really begins because Abraham says, well, how about 45? How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? And after each time, God says, for that number, I will, not, I will save the city if there are that many righteous people in it. And Abraham gets him all the way down to 10. And I just want to read that part of the conversation in Genesis 18, 32 to 33. Where then he said, he being Abraham, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home. Now that's kind of an abrupt ending to a negotiation. The Lord finished speaking and left after he said, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. As if, saying, as if God is saying, it's 10 and I'm done. Which makes you wonder, well, why wouldn't you say you're done at 20? Or why not try to negotiate down to 5? What's magical about the number 10? Why 10? Again, this is a really interesting negotiation. In all of Scripture, there aren't, I don't know if there's another negotiation quite like it in all of Scripture. There, there might be, but off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of one. And it's with, 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 between God and one of the heroes, one of the biggest heroes in all of Scripture. So there's this grand negotiation. It ends at 10, and then the rest of the story doesn't seem like that negotiation ever mattered. Well, if it didn't matter, why are you telling us about it? Because it doesn't seem like the number, well, I'll save it for 10. We don't hear anything about that the rest of the story. Or maybe we do, and we just miss it. I'm going to argue for that, that the number 10 is in the story. Again, we've just never seen it before. In verse 12 of the passage we read this morning, is the very first verse, it begins with the angel saying, the two men send a lot. Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here. Well, you know an easier way to say that if I'm the angels? Let's ask Lot if he's got any family and tell him to get out of here. Okay? Hey, Lot, you got family? Yeah, get them out of here. But that's not what they do. Do you have any sons-in-law or sons or daughters or, you know, get them out of here? Why go through the specifics of the family members? Why not just say, if you've got family, get them out of here with you. It would be much simpler. Why do you need that detail? Well, let's just assume, let's break down that list, and let's just assume the answer to each of those categories is yes. He's got that kind of family there. Let's start with the first thing on the list, sons-in-law. 
Does Lot have sons-in-law? Well, yes, the passage says he does. So he's got, and it says sons, not sons, sons-in-law. So he's got at least two. He's got at least two sons-in-law, which means he's got at least two married daughters, or at least engaged to be married, okay? Now, sons. The passage doesn't say whether or not Lot has any sons, but if it's consistent with the rest of the list, the answer is yes. So let's just assume, yes, he's got two sons. Okay, again, plural. We know from the story he has two unmarried daughters. So there's two more. And then we know that Lot is married, so you have Lot and his wife. There's two more. Anybody have a calculator app on your phone that you could whip out real quick? Okay, we could do some quick math. Two plus two plus two. Oh, wait, I got fingers for that. Okay, it's ten. There's your ten. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy the city. The strange circumstance is God was willing to save the city for Lot's family. It wasn't just any old ten. It was a specific ten. The conversation stops at ten because God is willing to spare the city for one family. Lot's family. Why Lot's family? Because Abraham advocated for them. Abraham advocated for Lot and his family. Because there's a strange shift that happens in this story. Lot doesn't have any influence. He can't convince anyone to do anything. When the men of the city wanted to harm the angels, Lot couldn't stop them. God was willing to spare the city for one family of ten. All Lot had to do was convince his own family, and he couldn't do it. Again, verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to be married to his daughters. And he said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. God was willing to spare the city for 10. Lot could only deliver four. And those four were him and three people who were completely dependent upon him. His wife and his unmarried daughters. Because in that culture and in that day, a woman's social well-being was dependent on a man. I am not saying that's how it should be. I'm just saying it's part of the context of the story. You have to understand. The only ones that came with Lot to leave the city were the ones who had no choice. They had to go. And even then, verse 26, Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Hey, look, in that culture, as well as in our culture, the one person that you need to be able to count on in tough times is your spouse. Abraham could negotiate with the divine. Lot couldn't convince his own family. It wasn't because of Lot that God acted. It was because of Abraham. Abraham's advocating on Lot's behalf is what caused God to act. It wasn't because Lot was a great guy and he had a great family. His, his and his family's shortcomings are highlighted in the story. Abraham's advocating on Lot's behalf is what caused God to act. And look, God is at work in the unexpected things of our life because 
we also have an advocate. Jesus is advocating on our behalf, which is why God acts in the unexpected things of our life. Look, God interacts in our lives in the unexpected, the good, the bad, the tragic. In the biblical story, in our story, God's at work in those unexpected things. Abraham advocated for Lot. We see God's faithfulness to Abraham in saving Lot. Lot didn't do a great job of influencing anybody else. He still got saved. Jesus advocates on our behalf. Not because we are righteous and holy and good, but because Jesus is righteous and holy and good. As it says in 1 John, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. When we sin, Jesus is our advocate. He sacrificed himself for our sins. He sacrificed himself for the sins of the whole world. Romans chapter 8 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And God is for us. And God is trying to help us in the chaos of our lives. There is no one like our God. His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It would be great if we could jump into this story and interact with Lot and tell Lot, hey, look, don't you see that God is trying to help you? We can't do that. But it might be a good idea to tell yourself that. Hey, do you realize that God is trying to help you? That's a great question for us to ask. We may not understand everything that God does in our lives, but Jesus gets it. He understands that God the Father will ask us, will challenge us, will command us to do hard things. And he knows that because God the Father asked God the Son to die on the cross for us. Jesus knows what it's like to do something hard because God asks us to or commands us to. He understands. He gets it. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us. And he's interceding for us because he knows that following God is hard.
And so he intercedes for us. In our darkest, deepest moments, in our deepest failures, he is still advocating for us. God is at work in the unexpected things of life because Jesus is advocating on our behalf. That's good news. That's good news, friends. What unexpected thing are you living through right now? How have you been blindsided by life? What strange thing do you need God to be working in? Please pray with me. And Lord, we come before you and we are so grateful that Jesus is at your right hand interceding for us, even at this very moment, advocating for us. And Lord, you know all the ways that we fall short. We're painfully familiar with them too. But Lord, remind us of how Jesus is advocating for us and how you are still for us. And Lord, give us the strength and encouragement and wisdom to see how you are trying to help us in our chaos. And Lord, help us to be obedient in following you as you try to lead us out of evil things and into good things. All for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.